Today's podcast is sponsored by Avast. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon is a premium men's essential brand that believes in smart design and high-quality fabrics. For 20% off your first order, visit macweldoncom gold and enter the promo code GOLD. The relief rally that began on Wednesday as a result of Jerome Powell not being quite as hawkish as some people had feared during his press conference. And again, he's not hawkish. It's degrees of dovishness because there are no more hawks. That bird is extinct as the dodo at the Federal Reserve. But because he was more dovish in his hawkishness than the markets expected, we got this rally. But also, it might have been a little bit of a buy the rumor, sell the fact. The markets had been discounting this Fed pivot where Powell acknowledged that inflation was intransitory, and now the Fed was going to adjust policy as a result of this revelation. Now, of course, some people might have expected the policy adjustment to be a little bit more dramatic than it actually was, but nonetheless, we had the pivot. The market rallied. Well, that relief rally did not last long. It immediately faded the following day. Stocks were broadly lower on Thursday especially the highly valued momentum-type stocks, the tech stocks, meme stocks, cryptocurrencies, anything that is highly speculative in nature that had been propped up by the Fed's easy money. Well, as the Fed threatens to make money less easy, a lot of these assets were falling. And the weakness continued again into Friday, Markets, again, closing lower on Friday, but many of these tech names did catch a bid. They rallied. To me, short covering came in. I don't think these stocks are out of the woods. I think the air is going to continue to come out of that bubble now that the Fed has pricked it. The question is, how much air is the Fed willing to allow to come out from that bubble before they do something to patch it up? But as I've been saying for some time on this podcast, as long as the Fed is moving in this direction, the markets are going to have a big headwind and they're going to be going down. What the markets need is for the Fed to pivot again. Right now, the markets are factoring in less loose monetary policy because that's what we have. We don't have tight money. We have less loose money because the Federal Reserve has still got interest rates at zero. They haven't raised them. And the Fed is still doing quantitative easing, even though they've said that they're going to increase the pace at slowing down quantitative easing. They're still doing it. In fact, look at the balance sheet. Last week, the Fed's balance sheet rose by another $92.1 billion in one week. It doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of tapering going on when the Fed grows the balance sheet by $92 billion in a single week. Look at the new record size of the Fed's balance sheet. $8.757 trillion is the new high watermark. Of course, it's not going to last long, 
more water is coming in. So this is loose monetary policy. Less loose, while it may constitute a tightening for the markets, is not a tightening for the economy. And it's not going to do anything about the inflation problem. It's going to make the inflation problem worse. But the stock market has a different kind of problem. You got to think of the stock market like a drug addict. And a drug addict who's used to a certain amount of drugs, they build up a tolerance for that drug. And if the body requires a certain amount, even if they continue to get the drug, if the dosage is reduced, that's problematic. And that's what's happening with the market. The U.S. stock market and its ridiculously high valuations and these momentum stocks, they need a certain amount of this monetary heroin to stay high. And even though the Fed is continuing to supply heroin, if they're going to supply less, it's not enough to satisfy this addiction. And so until we actually get a reversal, the Fed has to go from being less loose to being more loose. That's what the markets need. So Powell needs to do something like slow down the pace of the taper or probably more likely push back the date of liftoff the day the markets expect the first rate hike, because that would indicate another reversal where now the Fed is saying that we're going to go to an even looser monetary policy than the one we have right now. Now, if the Fed doesn't do that, if the Fed actually follows through with the taper on schedule and continues to project that they're going to raise rates and in fact delivers a rate hike in April or May or next year, if the Fed actually can keep this up for that long, then what the Fed is going to have to do to save the markets and cause the markets to stop falling, it's going to have to reverse from there. So it's going to have to either stop hiking, let the market know that it's pausing in the rate hikes, or in fact, reverse the hikes by cutting rates. And if the Fed has already ended quantitative easing, it's going to have to resume QE, reverse the taper, and start monetizing debt in a bigger way to put a floor beneath the markets and in fact, potentially get the stock market to start going up again. Of course, the only reason the Federal Reserve was able to lower interest rates and ease monetary policy to save a falling stock market was the pretext that inflation was still below target. And because we had too low inflation, the Fed had that extra room to prop up the stock market. But what happens in an environment where inflation is already too high, how can the Fed then justify saving the stock market if it means making the inflation problem even worse? After all, the stock market is about the rich people who own stocks. Well, what about the poorer middle-class people who don't own stocks but still have to shop and buy groceries and energy? Why force the poor to pay more just so the rich can have more? And in fact, the markets are not just pricing in a less loose Fed. I think many people are trying to look beyond that to the actual tightening, meaning when the Fed gets around to finally shrinking its balance sheet. In fact, there was some talk yesterday about when that would actually begin. The first time I've heard some people from the Federal Reserve talking about shrinking the balance sheet, not just slowing the rate at which it expands, but actually going back to quantitative tightening, which is something the Fed tried and gave up 
in 2018 when the market started to implode in December of that year, the Fed quickly backed away from quantitative tightening before resuming quantitative easing in the aftermath of COVID. But my point is that the markets are now thinking about this, and they're also starting to think about, of course, liftoff, the first rate hike, the soonest we may get an interest rate increase from the Fed, I think is April of next year. I think the markets seem to be betting that May is the most likely month that it may start, although the odds may change over time. But the markets are looking at this. So they're looking forward to tighter monetary policy. And if the Fed does start raising rates, if the Fed does start shrinking its balance sheet, that is a tightening. Now, I would say that if interest rates go up to 25 basis points, 50 basis points, you're still talking about easy money. It's still not tight. It's very loose. It's less loose, but that is a big problem for the markets. But again, it's not going to do anything about the inflation problem. You need tight monetary policy to deal with inflation. And even if the Fed becomes less loose, nobody is looking at tight money, especially the Fed. And again, I mentioned these dot plots on my last podcast, but the Federal Reserve, even looking out to the end of 2023, so more than two years from now, they still got interest rates below 2%. How can that be? If we really have an inflation problem, how are we going to do something about it by maintaining such historically low interest rates. And again, 2% would still be lower than the 2.5% the Fed got us back to in 2018 before they had to reverse course. How can we still be that low that far into the future when inflation is clearly much higher now than it was back then? And the answer is because Jerome Powell is convinced that the low inflation that the U.S. enjoyed over the decade or two prior to COVID, that that situation is going to return and that we can count on this extremely low inflation that we've had, that it is the new normal. And because inflation is going to go back to being really low, well, interest rates can stay really low. That's what supposedly is different. And this is what Powell actually expressed in his last press conference, that all of these factors that he believes have worked to the benefit of the U.S. economy to the extent that it has suppressed inflation and allowed the Fed to maintain what would be historically a highly inflationary monetary policy, they've been able to stay this loose because of all these exogenous factors that were working to lower prices. So that gave us the opportunity to print more money, to keep interest rates lower than we were able to do in the past because of these benevolent factors that were suppressing prices. And Powell is convinced that nothing has changed in that respect, that what we're seeing now is still transitory in the sense that it's not going to endure, that as soon as this period is over, however long it's going to take, we're going to go right back to that benign environment that we've been living in. And that's the reason the Fed can keep interest rates so low and we're not going to have to worry about inflation. And Jerome Powell is completely wrong. 
He really does not understand the factors that have been working to suppress inflation. What he doesn't get, and of course, you know, he could be lying, but let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and just assume that he's telling the truth and he just has no idea what he's talking about. And it's because Powell has absolutely no understanding of what really was helping to keep inflation down. That's why they can keep on printing money and assume that it's not going to have an adverse effect because they've been able to do it for so long. When the Fed first launched the quantitative easing programs after the 2008 financial crisis, I was out there, a number of other people were out there predicting substantial inflation as a result of those policies. And of course, the policies were inflation, but the public only looks at inflation as price increases, and so does the Fed. But it was obvious to me and to a lot of other people that if you create all this inflation, you print all this money, prices are going to go way up. And the fact that they didn't go way up did a lot to undermine that particular perspective. And it emboldened guys like Paul Krugman, who were saying, don't worry, there's going to be no inflation. This confirmed what they believed. And they were able to criticize people like me. In fact, Paul Krugman called me out personally on a couple of occasions as being wrong in my predictions for high inflation or hyperinflation as a result of quantitative easing. My predictions were not wrong. We're going to have that. In fact, we're already experiencing it now. It's just that there was a longer delay, a longer lag between the printing of all this money and the effects that it would have on the consumer price index. That lag was much longer than probably anybody expected. But because of that long lag, guys like Paul Krugman and Federal Reserve governors have been lulled into a false sense of security that they can continue with those policies now and we're still going to have a benign effect because apparently all of the factors that were working to lower inflation are still in place. The reality is they're not in place. And that's kind of what I want to talk about during this podcast is why is it that the Federal Reserve was able to print all this money yet we didn't see a much bigger increase in consumer prices until now. And it's not just COVID. I mean, COVID certainly accelerated this process in putting a lot of pressure on the supply side and at the same time causing governments around the world, but in particular in the U.S., to really goose the demand side with even more money printing. And so now, even if we would have been able to delay this for another few years, that period has been shortened dramatically based on how much we've upped the ante here when it comes to creating inflation. So number one, the first and probably most obvious reason that inflation has been so low, at least the way you measure it in consumer prices for the past couple of years, is because the government is simply lying about inflation. Inflation is not as low as the government has claimed. And that's because of the changes that were made to the CPI in the early 1990s. That is largely responsible for a big reduction in the inflation rate. Sure, if you're going to lie, if you're going to change the way you measure inflation, well, it's not going to be a surprise if the inflation that you're now measuring is lower because you've adjusted the methodology for measuring it. 
that is responsible for probably all of the undershoot of 2%. I mean, had the government measured inflation more accurately, had we continued throughout the 1990s and 2000s to use the same CPI that we had in the 1980s and 1970s, we never would have had a single year of sub 2% inflation. So the whole idea that inflation was somehow too low and the Fed needed to pursue policies to actively seek a higher rate was all a ruse because it never was low. The government lied to pretend inflation was low and then used that low inflation as an excuse to create more. So that's the number one reason we haven't been honest. Inflation has been there. It's been much higher than the government has acknowledged. But that's not the whole story because you had another significant factor, maybe even more significant than lying about inflation, that actively did work to temporarily mitigate the damage and delay it to the future. Now, the problem is we've caught up to the future because that future is now the present and we're now feeling the consequences. Those inflation chickens that have been out there for all these years are now coming home to roost, and that's what we're experiencing. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night, and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code and saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years, and it's trusted by over 435 million users. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Avast has award-winning antivirus that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. There's also a data breach monitoring feature, enabling you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised or whether your passwords need to be changed. You get firewall protection, keeping personal information secure and preventing attacks that seek to access your computer and steal your data. Ransomware protection, securing your personal photos, documents, and other files from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware attacks. It even speeds up your PC by optimizing the background activity of your apps. And their smart scan feature enables you to find and remove viruses and resolve the most common privacy and performance issues. I've personally been using Avast for years to secure my data and protect my privacy. In fact, Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month with Avast One. So now you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cyber crimes. To learn more about Avast One, go to avast.com. If you think about, again, the classic Milton Friedman inflation, which is what inflation is, which is too much money chasing too few goods, you print more money and it bids up the supply of goods. What has been happening in the U.S. economy? The Fed prints all this money, yet that money doesn't lose a lot of value. Look at the exchange rate of the dollar versus other currencies. We've had this massive explosion of money printing. 
big increase in the Fed's balance sheet. But on a relative basis, the dollar hasn't lost a lot of value relative to other currencies, despite the fact that we've dramatically increased the supply. Imagine if the United States existed as an island. We didn't trade with any other nations. So any money the Federal Reserve printed just stayed within our borders. It didn't go anywhere, right? And so the only stuff you could buy with the money the Fed printed was the stuff that we made here domestically because that was the only source of goods. Well, obviously the effect would have been much different because if the Fed prints a bunch of money and we don't have any stuff, we're not producing, we don't have factories making stuff, then the prices are obviously going to go way up. But there was kind of like an escape valve that allowed the Fed to print a lot of money and it not push up the price of goods. And that was the fact that we have a whole world out there that was able to produce the goods that the U.S. economy couldn't. And we were able to take all the money that the Federal Reserve printed and then use that money to buy all those goods that were made outside the United States. So the Fed prints money, the government gets it, sends it to Americans. Americans take that money and buy Chinese goods with it. And now the Chinese send us their goods and we send the Chinese our money. So the money the Fed creates is shipped abroad. So it's not in America bidding up prices, but now the goods that the Chinese produced, they get shipped to America. So now we have all those extra goods to keep a lid on prices. And if you look at the breakdown of the CPI between goods and services, if you just look at services, you've seen a substantial increase in prices, even with the government rigging the CPI, because the cost of services has actually risen by more than what the government admits. But if you strip out goods, you'll see a much bigger increase in prices. Why? Because we can't easily import those services. There isn't a foreign alternative. You can't outsource that stuff because the services have to be performed locally. But when it comes to goods, more and more goods have been outsourced to cheaper production economies like China. And so that's kept the lid on goods prices. And so when you average the goods prices with the service prices, that's kept the measured rate of inflation lower. I mean, think about the low production costs in a country like China, which, you know, 20 years ago, they were just starting out. They went through a long period of time where they had a communist system not just in name, but in practice. And so you had a lot of very poor people. And as they began to embrace capitalism, wages started at a very low level. And of course, they didn't have a lot of the rules and regulations that we had. Uh, They didn't have all these environmental protections. And so the cost of manufacturing and the cost of labor, capital was all much lower in a country like China. And so we were able to outsource that production in order to keep costs down, even as the Federal Reserve was printing money. And of course, the money that we were printing, we were sending abroad. See, now normally this wouldn't work because if you ran a big trade deficit like the one the U.S. is running, your currency would crash because your trading partners would have all this currency, but they'd have nothing to buy because the whole purpose of trade is that you export to import. You have a concept of comparative advantage. And if 
as a nation, there are certain things that you can produce efficiently and there are other things that you can't. Rather than producing everything, you produce just what you can make efficiently and then you trade that for the things that you don't produce efficiently because maybe your trading partner can produce that more efficiently. And so by everybody concentrating on what they make efficiently and then trading, everybody ends up with more stuff, higher living standards, lower prices. But the goal of your exports is to pay for your imports. You don't just export for the sake of exporting. That's just a waste of resources. You export to pay for your imports. But what about America? You've got China and other countries exporting to the United States. They're not getting imports. They're getting dollars. And because the U.S. is the reserve currency, those dollars are actually valuable. And so our trading partners are content or have been in the past to exchange the products that they produce for the money that we print. Now, their willingness to continue to do that and pursue this arrangement, I think, is coming to an end. I think the world is going to tire of exchanging real goods for our paper, especially when they understand how much less that paper is going to be worth in the future than it is now when they realize the box that the Fed is in with respect to its ability to control inflation and the fact that government deficits are going to keep on getting bigger and bigger and bigger, putting more and more pressure on the Federal Reserve to monetize those deficits. And in fact, the reason that the deficits were able to get so big in the first place was because of this arrangement, because foreigners were willing to hold on to our U.S. treasuries and keep interest rates artificially low that emboldened the government to go even deeper into debt, because normally a government that was this profligate would be punished by higher interest rates And that punishment would change their behavior and cause more fiscal responsibility. But we never got punished. And as a result of that, we continue to pursue even more reckless policies than we had in the past. And so foreigners actually helped encourage this. And ultimately now they're going to be the ones that are going to put on the brakes because they're going to stop enabling all of this debt. But it's going to be the Federal Reserve that is going to ultimately replace foreign buyers of U.S. treasuries. But of course, when foreigners buy U.S. treasuries, there's no new dollars created. They buy treasuries with the dollars that already exist. But when the Federal Reserve has to buy those treasuries, they have to produce even more dollars to finance it, which is inflation. And of course, if those dollars stay here, if they're not exported, then they are going to be bidding up prices. And this is what Powell doesn't understand. We are not going to be able to continue to export our inflation to the degree that we did. And we're going to start to see goods prices rising now. Mack Weldon is a premium men's essential brand that believes in smart designs and high quality fabrics. This holiday season, Mack Weldon can help you stay stylish and comfortable no matter the occasion. Whether it's an office party, getting together with family or friends, or just watching TV at home. Mack Weldon's innovative daily wear system has taken the hard work out of outfit planning with pieces designed to work together for any occasion, saving you time and extra holiday stress. Mack Weldon's warm knit collection features shirts, vests, pajama pants, and more to keep you at a warm temperature in cold weather with innovative technology that uses 
uses your own body heat for warmth. Mack Weldon's Ace Collection pairs super soft, high-performance fabrics with great style. Mack Weldon's gift sets with limited edition colors are the perfect present for any guy on your Christmas list this holiday season. In fact, when I got my Mack Weldon products in the mail, I was particularly impressed by the packaging, which makes them particularly ideal to give as Christmas gifts. And now you can get 20% off your first order at MacWeldon.com slash gold when you enter the promo code gold. That's MacWeldon.com slash gold using the promo code gold to get 20% off. MacWeldon, get it right for the holidays. Get a MacWeldon. And of course, even if the Fed hadn't increased the pace of its money printing, the benefits of outsourcing our production to countries like China was bound to diminish over time as Chinese wages go up, as production costs go up. There is less of a benefit of continuing to shift production abroad. And of course, as we've shifted more and more production abroad, there's less incremental benefit from shifting more. See, in the early days of outsourcing, we got a lot of bang for the buck. But over time, that impact is lessened. And so the benefit that we got of having our consumer prices reduced as a result of that is also getting diminished. So it was going to happen anyway, but we've now dramatically accelerated it. And of course, there was another big benefit to this arrangement where we run huge trade deficits, foreigners send us their stuff so that we have goods to buy and we send foreigners our money, was that foreigners took that money and they bought financial assets. Now, number one, yes, they bought U.S. treasuries, mortgage-backed securities. So all of this worked to keep interest rates low and that helped prop up the stock market, prop up the real estate market. But they also directly bought U.S. stocks. It wasn't that they just bought treasuries to keep interest rates low to improve stock market valuations. They actually bought U.S. stocks. People all around the world have taken the trade surpluses that they've earned trading with the United States and they've invested in the U.S. stock market. And so that buying has also helped to bolster U.S. stock market performance. And so Americans have more wealth now on paper as a result of foreigners recycling their trade surpluses directly into the U.S. equity market. Now, I think that's also going to be coming to an end because what's really been attractive about the U.S. equity market have been these big marquee tech names, the Microsofts, the Facebooks, the Amazons, Fang stocks, and other stocks that we have in greater abundance than the rest of the world. Well, if I'm right about the future outlook for those stocks, that those multiples are going to be coming down and the willingness of investors to make large bets on earnings that aren't going to materialize until the distant future, if this is going to change, then the world is no longer going to want to have as much money invested in U.S. stocks, and that's going to diminish the demand for U.S. dollars and the willingness of our trading partners to accept U.S. dollars for their goods because they don't want to buy our stocks anymore, and they certainly don't want to buy our bonds anymore because the rates are too low. What do they need our dollars for? They don't. And when they no longer need our dollars, the dollar's exchange value is going to plummet. And when that starts to happen, that is going to accelerate 
the price increases that Americans are going to be dealing with because we've had the type of inflation that we're experiencing now, 2021, with a stronger dollar. The dollar is stronger today. Its exchange rate relative to other currencies is higher today than it was when the year began, yet prices have gone way up despite a stronger dollar. Can you imagine how much greater those price increases would have been had we had a weaker dollar instead of a stronger dollar? Now, eventually, you're not going to have to imagine that. You're going to be experiencing it because it's going to be a reality. But also to think about this huge benefit that we've had from the ability to have foreigners invest in our assets with their trade surpluses and the degree that it's impacted not only minimizing inflation because money that otherwise would have been spent by Americans on goods instead was spent by foreigners on assets. And that's, again, one of the reasons I talk about inflation manifesting itself in asset prices. Now, some people say it's asset price inflation. It's not asset price inflation. It's inflation because inflation is the money supply. It's just that because of these trade deficits, the money supply ended up flowing into financial assets rather than consumer goods. And so the inflation manifests itself in asset prices instead of consumer prices. It's still a problem, But the Federal Reserve and the public don't see that as a problem. They actually see it as a good thing because they see the stock market going up. The Fed thinks it's a good thing because the stock market is now a barometer of the economy, creating all this wealth. The politicians love it. So the trade deficits were not a problem because they helped perpetuate this bubble. But this is going to come back to bite us. But a perfect example of the degree to which this has benefited the U.S. market, just look at the Swiss National Bank. I don't have the latest figures. I'm looking at figures that, you know, from earlier in the year. So I'm sure it's even more now. But I read an article, uh, I think it was from April or May, that the Swiss National Bank's U.S. equity portfolio, just U.S. stocks, not the rest of the world, just U.S., was about $170 billion worth of stocks. That is a tremendous amount of money, especially when you consider the fact that there's only 8.6 million Swiss. It's a small country. So if you break that down per capita, the Swiss National Bank right now holds in excess of $20,000 of U.S. stock for every man, woman, and child in Switzerland. So your typical family of four That's $80,000 in U.S. stocks. Again, this doesn't count the Japanese stocks, the German stocks, the French stocks, right? The rest of the world. It's only our country, America. The Swiss National Bank is holding $80,000 worth of U.S. stock for every Swiss family of four, right? Now, I'm sure your typical Swiss family also owns U.S. stocks directly, right? Because... People all around the world have been buying U.S. stocks. This is just what the government owns on behalf of those families. Now, contrast that to stocks that Americans own. Because first of all, the Federal Reserve doesn't own any stock, right? The only thing the Federal Reserve owns is bonds. So the U.S. Federal Reserve doesn't own any stock on behalf of the American public. So the only stock the American public owns is the stock that they went out and bought 
Well, if you look at the statistics, only about half of U.S. households own any stock. So half of them, it's a zero. Now, the half that do, I think they've got an average of about $8,500 in the U.S. stock market per household, not per individual, per household. So if half households don't own any and the other half have about $8,500, well, then the average American household maybe has about $4,000 worth of stock, whereas the average Swiss household has $80,000 just in U.S. stock and just what the government owns on their behalf, excluding all of their personal holdings. So this is tremendous if you think about that and the effect that stuff like this has on the price of U.S. stocks because you have so many foreigners that have been buying these stocks. But what does that mean going forward? If the U.S. moves into a bear market, a lot of these foreign holders of U.S. stocks, they're going to start selling. And they got a lot of stock to sell. And a bear market in the U.S. dollar is just as problematic because if the U.S. dollar is going down, that means U.S. stocks are also going down in terms of foreign currencies, unless they're going up by enough to offset that. So even a bear market in the U.S. dollar could cause a bear market in U.S. stocks if it causes foreign holders of those stocks to get rid of them because of the foreign exchange losses. But that's another reason that the Federal Reserve wants to perpetuate a bull market in U.S. stocks is because it doesn't want foreigners selling. It needs foreigners to keep buying and it needs foreigners to keep recycling their trade surpluses into U.S. stocks so they don't actually try to spend their dollars on U.S. goods that don't exist because these stocks are absorbing a lot of that demand because we don't make the products that the world wants, but we create the stocks that the world's investors want to buy. Now, my point is they're not going to want to buy those stocks anymore. They're overpriced and the dynamics are changing. So again, the Federal Reserve is blinded by these realities. It thinks that we're just going to go right back to the low inflation environment that existed prior to COVID. Well, it turns out that that environment was transitory, right? Maybe the transition took 10 or 20 years, but it's over. And now we're back to reality when it comes to inflation, meaning if we keep printing money, we're going to have to deal with the immediate impact on prices. And if the Fed keeps interest rates this low, we're going to have to deal with the realities of the inflation that that creates. And so what that also means, if we want to fight inflation, we're going to have to fight it old school. We can't fight it the way Powell thinks we can fight it by just being a little less loose. We're going to have to be tight. And we know what that looks like. The last time we actually had to fight inflation was early 1980s. And we know what that took. And the reality is, we have created far more inflation in the current period than we did in the 1960s and the 1970s. We have a bigger problem to deal with and we're in a position where we're less able to deal with it. That is the bigger issue. Not just that we have a huge inflation problem, but that we can't deal with it because the only way to deal with inflation is with tight money. But when you've built an economy that's completely dependent on loose money, how do you pursue a tight monetary policy without destroying that phony economy? You can't. 
but you have to. You see, everybody expects the Fed to be able to come up with a policy that doesn't hurt the economy. Well, that's not possible, especially when you have a phony economy. When the economy is a bubble and everybody wants the Fed to figure out how to fight inflation without pricking the bubble, that is an impossible task. The bubble has to be pricked. And in fact, it's good policy to prick a bubble. It may not be fun. It may not feel good, but it is right. It is the correct policy choice regardless of the short-term impact. Just like if you're a drug addict, Stop using drugs. That's the correct thing to do. Even if you go through withdrawal, even if in the short run, it doesn't feel as good as continuing to take drugs, it's the right thing to do. And the Fed needs to fight inflation regardless of the negative impacts on the economy. My point has always been we should have fought this battle a long time ago when the collateral damage wouldn't have been as severe. I mean, it would have been severe had we done it years ago. It's just that much worse now, which is why we kept kicking the can down the road. But that's why I was so critical of the Fed's policy mistakes as they were making those mistakes in real time. And they're continuing to make those mistakes in the present for the same reason they made them in the past. In fact, they have even more reasons to make the mistakes now because the cost of doing the right thing is even more severe than it would have been had they been willing to pay it in the past, which they weren't. And so they're certainly not willing to pay now. And another thing that Powell just doesn't understand is when this whole dynamic reverses, when all of the money that we have shipped abroad that is now in U.S. financial assets, as foreigners start divesting themselves of overpriced U.S. stocks and bonds, they will have dollars, right? When somebody abroad sells a U.S. stock or U.S. bond, they receive dollar proceeds in exchange for those transactions. Well, now what do they do with the dollars that they receive? They sell them. They go into the foreign exchange market and they sell them to get their own currency. And all of those dollars ultimately come back into the United States, except now they're not coming back to buy financial assets. They're coming back to buy goods consumer goods. Now, they may not necessarily be goods that we produce. They may be goods that we've already produced, like used cars. In fact, one of the reasons that used car prices could end up going up much more in the future than they're already going up is because the rest of the world is going to buy them, right? And a lot of the cars, the used cars that are now here in America are going to be put on ships and sent off to places like China because the Chinese, they could use a lot of cars. They got a lot of people who don't have cars. Maybe they're still on bicycles and they want to buy cars. You know, one day Americans may be riding around on used Chinese bicycles because they'll end up sending some bicycles here that they won't need anymore because they'll have our cars and we're going to need their bikes because we can't afford cars. I mean, think about it like a giant repossession. I mean, we bought all these cars with money we didn't have. We really couldn't afford it, but the world loaned us this money and we were able to buy the cars. Well, now the world wants the cars back. They want the collateral because they don't want the money anymore. And so they're going to start bidding up the prices of these used cars. And so the used cars are going to be shipped outside the United States. It's going to be the opposite of what I described before, where the Federal Reserve prints money and we ship the money abroad and the rest of the world ships us stuff. So we have all this stuff. And so prices don't go up and the rest of the world gets our money and they buy stocks and bonds. Well, in the future, we're going to print money and it's going to stay here. But the money we've already printed is going to come back 
And as it comes back, goods are going to flow out. So it's the opposite. Instead of money flowing out and goods flowing in, we get goods flowing out and money flowing in. And the dollar just collapses and prices are going to spiral out of control. That is where we're headed. In fact, look at what's going on this week with the Turkish lira. The currency is getting killed, all-time record lows, and pretty much everybody is united in their condemnation of Turkish monetary policy. Interest rates, they're saying, are too low in Turkey. In fact, they recently cut interest rates in the face of high inflation, and this is being universally criticized by the world's central banks, by economists. Everybody is in agreement that Turkish monetary policy is a mistake. They need higher interest rates because they have such high inflation. Well, think about this. Inflation in Turkey right now, although it's probably going to move up, but the most recent data that I've seen on Turkish inflation is 21.3% inflation. Interest rates in Turkey were just reduced to 14%. Okay. And they're saying this is terrible. You can't have 14% interest rates with 21.3% inflation. That's negative 7.3%. That's reckless. That's irresponsible, right? Well, what is America doing? Our interest rates are zero, not 14%. We're at zero, but our inflation, if you annualize the first 11 months of this year, 2021 inflation is 7.3%. Well, that means our interest rates are negative 7.3. That happens to be exactly the same interest rate as Turkey. Because if you take 21.3, which is the inflation rate, and subtract 14, the nominal interest rate, you get 7.3% negative rates. Well, you have 7.3% negative rates in Turkey, and you have 7.3% negative interest rates in America. Well, why is America getting away with it? And in fact, we probably have even lower negative rates than that because the 7.3% CPI is a fiction. The real rate of inflation in the United States is 15%. Now, you know, maybe there's some flaws in the way the Turks are measuring their inflation rate too. So maybe their rate is actually above 21.3. But if you look at 15% inflation, which I think is more accurate, we've got negative 15% interest rates. The reality is, America is the real Turkey. I mean, why isn't the dollar collapsing like the lira? The answer is because the U.S. is issuing the reserve currency and Turkey is not. So Turkey is being held accountable for negative 7.3% interest rates and the U.S. is not. But eventually we will be. I mean, one of the reasons is the world still has confidence that U.S. inflation is going to drop. The Turkish Central Bank doesn't have that type of confidence. Well, the U.S. Central Bank shouldn't. We have a reputation that we don't deserve. Eventually, we are going to lose it as people realize that there is no real difference between the U.S. dollar and the Turkish lira. It's all the same thing. And so what they're experiencing in Turkey now is what we're going to experience in the U.S. later, only worse. Because once this dynamic really comes into play, again, we're not just going to be held accountable 
for the inflation that we're creating now, we're going to be held accountable for all the inflation that we've created in the past. We have been insulated by the effects because of all that money circulating all over the world. Pretty much all the Turkish lira are there in Turkey. I mean, how many people outside Turkey are holding on to a bunch of lira? Hardly anybody. But in the world, you've got dollars all over the place that are not in the U.S. But as all those dollars come home, the problems of inflation really begin to take hold and it's going to put the Federal Reserve in a real box because, you know, even if it starts tightening monetary policy in a real way, even if it starts printing less money or, in fact, withdrawing money from circulation, the domestic money supply can still be growing even if the total supply of dollars is shrinking. And that's going to be problematic because prices will keep going up even as the Fed is trying to shrink the money supply to stop them from going up if we ever even get to that point. But I want to finish up the podcast, though, talking a little bit again about Bitcoin, because I want to talk in more depth about one of the comments that Powell made at that press conference that specifically related to Bitcoin, because when he was asked about Bitcoin by one of the reporters, and I don't know which one, Powell was very dismissive of Bitcoin as an asset. And on this point, I agree with Powell. He said Bitcoin was very risky and that it's not backed by anything And his main concern is people losing money in Bitcoin and what we maybe could do to protect a consumer from losing money by gambling on risky cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And what I thought was very interesting was the reaction on CNBC. I was watching a Fast Money clip and pretty much the crew on Fast Money was unanimous in their criticism of Powell. In fact, they were making fun of him. They were kind of laughing about it because according to these guys, it was a very ironic, ignorant comment to criticize Bitcoin for being backed by nothing because after all, the dollar's not backed by anything either, right? And so when you live in a glass house, don't throw stones. How can Powell criticize Bitcoin for its lack of backing when there's nothing that backs the U.S. dollar. And that's where the fast money crew is completely wrong. And probably all the other crypto pumpers, they don't understand that there is something that backs the dollar. Even though it's a fiat currency, it has backing. Federal Reserve notes, which are really what dollars are. They're not dollars, they're notes. Grab a dollar bill from your pocket and read the inscription. It says this note, right? All of the Federal Reserve notes on the bill, it says this note, not this dollar, this note is legal tender. So it is a note. Now, it's not a legitimate note in that a real note is a promise to pay. So if you own somebody's note, the person or entity that issued that note is obligated to give you something in exchange for that note. Now, at one point in time, Federal Reserve notes were legitimate notes in that it obligated the Federal Reserve to pay gold real dollars to the holders of its notes, right? So from that perspective, Federal Reserve notes are no longer the legitimate notes they once were, but they are still notes in a sense that they represent a liability on a balance sheet. Because every time the Federal Reserve issues Federal Reserve notes, it's a liability. The liability is offset by an asset. What is the asset to the Federal Reserve? Well, their balance sheet. I mentioned earlier today that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is now a record $8.757 trillion. 
Well, those treasuries, and it's not all treasuries now, you've got mortgage-backed securities, maybe there's some corporate bonds, but that balance sheet is the assets that back up their liabilities, all of the Federal Reserve notes. So from that perspective, the U.S. dollar is backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, because as long as people are willing to hold U.S. treasuries and loan money to the U.S. government, there's value to the dollar. Now, of course, if people no longer have confidence in the dollar, they don't want dollars, they shouldn't want treasuries either, because all treasuries are are dollars. But obviously, at some point, a high enough rate of interest may create value. That's what happened in 1980, when you had the dollar free falling. The dollar was collapsing by 1980. It had gone down by about two-thirds, right? The dollar went from 360 yen to about 150. It went from four and a quarter Deutschmarks to something like one and a half. You know, look at the Swiss franc went from like 23 cents to 75 cents, right? The dollar was imploding. And so how did the Federal Reserve shore up? Well, they increased interest rates dramatically and yields on U.S. Treasuries went way up to the point that the yields were so high that people were willing to buy dollars because even if they were losing value, they were more than making up for that loss of value with interest. You had very high real interest rates and that ultimately put a floor beneath the dollar. So if the dollar really started to fall, the Federal Reserve could start withdrawing its notes from circulation and replacing them with treasuries. The Fed could sell treasuries and buy back its notes, shrink the supply of dollars, but also offer holders a higher yielding instrument. Now, of course, that's very problematic for the U.S. government, for the U.S. taxpayer. When treasuries go way up, when the yields go way up, that's a big problem. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so bearish on the economy and inflation, but at least in theory. And I'm talking in theory right now because this is something that the people on CNBC don't understand. They don't know what money is. They don't know the concept. But the Federal Reserve notes, aka US dollars, are backed by this balance sheet. And the Fed can go into the market and buy back dollars and give holders of dollars high-yielding U.S. treasuries. Now, they don't yield a lot now, but obviously the Fed can exchange these treasuries at lower prices, and then the owners get a much higher yield. Now, again, that's problematic because that means the Federal Reserve takes a huge hit, it loses money, and now it sends the bill to the U.S. Treasury, which is obligated by law to make up those losses, which means the U.S. taxpayer is on the hook to backstop Federal Reserve losses that it undertakes in defending the U.S. dollar that may result in it selling its treasuries at a loss so that the new owners can be paid a higher rate of return to hold on to those treasuries. But that is still a method for backing, right? So the Federal Reserve note is backed by something. Now, I don't think that backing is ideal, In fact, it's hardly ideal. Federal Reserve notes should be backed by real money. They should be backed by gold, but they are backed by something. It's not like the U.S. government just prints money and sends it out there. You still have this independent, quasi-independent bank, right, private bank that is issuing notes, and those notes are backed up 
by all of the government bonds that it independently owns, right, on that private balance sheet. And those bonds are its assets, its portfolio, which serve as backing for its liabilities, which are the U.S. currency. So to say that Bitcoin and U.S. dollars are the same because neither are backed is wrong because there is no central banking authority that has a portfolio of assets that back up Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not a liability of anybody the way a Federal Reserve note is a liability of the Federal Reserve. Bitcoin is what it is. It's just a digital token. There is nothing behind it other than the token itself. Now, when you have real money like gold, gold doesn't need to be backed by anything because people will say, well, gold's not backed by anything. Gold doesn't need backing because it's a metal. It's backed by itself. It's backed by what you use gold for, using it in jewelry, using it in consumer electronics. There are real uses for that metal. The reason paper money needs to be backed by something is because there is no actual use for that paper money. That's why it needs to be backed by something where there is use. So that paper is basically an IOU for something of actual value. And it's the something of actual value that gives value to that piece of paper. But Bitcoin doesn't have any actual value unto itself because it's not used for anything and it's not backed by anything. So it's not like Federal Reserve notes that are backed by U.S. Treasuries and it's not like gold that's backed by its metallic properties. It's just nothing. It is nothing more than a pyramid Ponzi hybrid. People buy Bitcoin because they expect the price to go up and as soon as people no longer expect the price to go up, then nobody's going to want to buy it and then the bottom is going to drop out. But before that does... I would strongly suggest that any of my listeners to this podcast, and I know there are a lot of people who own Bitcoin who listen to my podcast, you got to sell. And you don't have to sell everything. I mean, if you want to hold on to some Bitcoin, fine. If that's the only way that you'll sell some, well, then do that. But what you can't do is just hold on to everything. As I think I mentioned on a previous podcast, something like 80% of all the people who own Bitcoin have never sold a single Satoshi. You got to sell. You can't just keep all of your winnings on the table and hope your luck doesn't run out because eventually it will. And so before it does, act responsibly. At a minimum, take your principal off the table and just play with the house's money. But I wouldn't stop there. I would take a considerable amount of my profits away as well and invest that money more responsibly. You know, the Bitcoin community makes a big deal about the fact that baby boomers, older people like me, well, we barely own any Bitcoin. But if you look at the millennials, right, they have so much in Bitcoin and they look at that as a good thing. To me, that's a negative because more experienced investors who have a greater understanding, more knowledge, those are the ones that are choosing not to buy because they understand the Ponzi-like nature of what's going on. But you have young, inexperienced investors. Those are the ones that are buying in. It's not because they're so tech savvy and they're so smart. It's because they're so dumb. They're just not smart enough to realize it because they haven't lived long enough. I mean, every generation 
thinks they're smarter than their parents and their grandparents. They think that they're doing something that we've never done before. And look, just because you take a Ponzi pyramid scheme and make it digital and put it on a blockchain, it doesn't change the nature of the scheme. It's going to end just as badly, even though it's got all this technology behind it and all this new infrastructure. A rose by any other name is still a rose. Although the better analogy for Bitcoin is a tulip by any other name is still a tulip, even if it's digital. Mm-hmm.